Is there something wrong? Warning. Life support failure on all decks. Abandon ship. Maybe it is time to take command. Bridge to Captain. Join Jan Shaw updating current events as only Jan can. Library computer. Data being received. Produced by CosmicReality.com. Hello and welcome to this week's Cosmic Creating Show. My name is Jan Shaw, the Success Alchemist. You can find me at thesuccessalchemist.net, on Facebook and YouTube, Jan Shaw, the Success Alchemist, on X at Coach Jan Shaw, on True Social, Success Alchemist, and on Telegram, US UK Patriot. Today is the 20th of January, 2024. And the title of today's show is 20th of January Astrology, Trump Victory, WEF Losing, and Hunter in Trouble. I'm going to start today's show talking about astrology because today is a very auspicious day in the astrological calendar. And I found an article on thecut.com. And it says, Pluto in Aquarius is bringing more unprecedented times. On January 20th, Pluto will shift into Aquarius. This is a big deal, people. In fact, Pluto's movement into this innovative zodiac sign only happens every 248 years. So the fact that it's happening right now during this time of endless back-to-back unprecedented events is notable. So what does Pluto in Aquarius mean? Here's everything you need to know about one of the most important astrological occurrences of 2024. What does Pluto represent? Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune and Pluto are referred to as transpersonal or generational planets meaning their influence is large-scale, long-term, and experienced en masse. And of these celestial bodies, Pluto has the longest orbit and likewise largest impact of them all. Named after the Greek ruler of the underworld, Pluto represents all that exists beneath the surface. Think clandestine plots, hidden agendas, systemic oppression. It also represents the incredible pressure that builds on a subterranean level and what happens when that extreme intensity gets released. Ultimately, Pluto is about truth and power. It's about peeling back the layers to identify who's really in charge, what's really at stake, what's really going on. Despite being a small celestial body in our solar system, Pluto's astrological significance is enormous. In this pursuit of exposing truth and power, Pluto's touch is far from delicate. It does indeed come in like a wrecking ball. Clever and calculating, Pluto isn't afraid to tear apart the most complex systems from the inside out. Metamorphosis, evolution, transmutation, that's the Plutonian way. Since 2008, Pluto has been marching through Capricorn's industrious sign. 
Capricorn is associated with big business, Wall Street, corporate power, <coughs> greed, and traditional economic structures. In fact, many astrologers associate the mounting acceleration of late-stage capitalism with Pluto's journey through Capricorn. As the middle class shrunk and billionaires reigned supreme, this disturbing economic stratification sure felt Plutonian, if you ask me. But this extreme dichotomy is, like, not good. And I'm sure we can all agree that something's got to give. Fortunately, the cosmos have a pretty sophisticated checks and balances system. Enter Pluto in Aquarius. There are no coincidences, remember. What does this Pluto in Aquarius transit actually mean? After a long cruise through Capricorn, Pluto's upcoming journey in Aquarius will offer a markedly different experience. Despite its aqua prefix, Aquarius is an air sign, and all the air signs of the zodiac, Gemini, Libra, and Aquarius, are associated with relationships, community, and networks. As the final air sign of the zodiac, Aquarius is focused on the people, with a capital P. Governed by Uranus, Aquarius is motivated by collective care, humanitarianism, and large-scale societal matters, and associated with rebellion and revolution, along with scientific breakthroughs, medical advancements, and technological achievements. So when the planet of transformation gets tangled up with subversive Aquarius, we should expect some radical dismantling to occur, as well as some extraordinary developments that may change life as we know it. Futuristic and forward-thinking, Pluto in Aquarius may yield everything from new governmental structures to flying cars, finally. But will it be a utopian paradise or a dystopian hellscape? That remains to be decided. Because Pluto moves so slowly, it will take time for us to really understand the implications of this powerful transit. Pluto entered Aquarius briefly in 2023, from March 23rd through June 11th, before skipping back into Capricorn's domain. This year, Pluto will find its footing in Aquarius's sky. Pluto will be in Aquarius from January 20th, 2024, through September 1st, 2024, briefly retrograde back into Capricorn to tie up loose ends, and re-enter Aquarius on November 19th, 2024, where it will remain until March 8th, 2043. That's right, friends. Pluto will remain in Aquarius for the next 19 years, so we have plenty of time to get to know this sign. Who will be impacted by Pluto in Aquarius? Everyone. Remember, Pluto is a transpersonal planet, it will impact all of us on a societal level. And then it goes into how it impacts people's different astrological charts. It ends by saying, of course, with a transit that comes around only every 248 years, there are lots of unknown. Will this finally yield the age of Aquarius promised in hair? Or will we find ourselves slipping into some Orwellian novel 
defined by rogue AI and fascist algorithms. We'll have to wait and see. Personally, I would hazard a guess that it's going to be beneficial to us, given what we're seeing about the deep state being in a panic, and also based on some other people's impressions of what this um, Pluto in Aquarius situation will bring. This is a tweet from Ariel. His handle is at proletario1. And he says, January 20th, the Sun and Pluto moved together into zero degrees Aquarius, the zero point void, creating a system reset. Now, you may ask, what does this astrological alignment mean for humanity? For humanity, this alignment may usher in a period of significant change, innovation and a departure from established norms. It could mark a time when collective consciousness takes a leap forward, embracing new ideas, technologies or societal structures. The transition into Aquarius, an air sign associated with innovation and unconventional thinking, reinforces the potential for a paradigm shift. We are on the cusp of a paradigm shift back to zero point. Individual experiences may vary, but on a broader scale, this cosmic event encourages adaptability, openness to change, and a willingness to explore uncharted territories. It is a reminder that growth often emerges from the transformative process, and this celestial alignment could serve as a catalyst for positive evolution on a global scale. Astrology and Transitions in astrology, the movement of celestial bodies into zero degrees of a zodiac sign is considered a critical point, often associated with transitions or shifts. It can represent the ending of one phase and the beginning of another, symbolizing a reset or new beginning. Now, what could this new beginning be? Well, Meg Benedict stated something very interesting which falls right in line with what I have been telling you all regarding the New Republic. She stated it takes 248 years for Pluto to revolve around the Sun. The last time Pluto moved through Aquarius in 1778 to 1798 was a time of tumultuous revolution. During Pluto's previous transit, the French Revolution and American Revolution was led by citizen unrest, striving to break free from oppressive monarchies, unhealthy living conditions, rampant poverty, and imbalanced power systems. The Aquarian people's revolutions established new republics. Well, would you look at that? Another coincidence. She continues, The great wheel of time turns again as a new revolving global cycle begins. We either align with the circular movement of revolutionary progress or stubbornly hold on to the past and physical status quo. What better way to establish a new way of living than to revamp the very system that financially enslaved us by requiring them to have real assets or reserves to function? Zero point meaning different things for a variety of areas that affect your life. Baal 3 banking system ISO 20022, digital currency, artificial intelligence, 
free energy, crystalline DNA, gold and silver, holographic healing, hydrogen, etc. Everything in existence will go through a reset. Nothing will be the same. He did go into some other things in that tweet, um, but I just wanted to pick out the salient points about the astrological impact of this um, Pluto into Aquarius transition. So I think it's more indication that we're living through very exciting times. And so I'm going to move on to the news now. And the first thing I'm going to look at is Trump's victory. And of course, the caucus in Iowa was held on Monday, so it's kind of old news, but I wanted to include it anyway. But there's also some other signs that Trump is winning in all these ridiculous um, legal lawfare cases that he's up against. So I'm going to start with Slay News. Trump storms to victory to win 2024 Iowa caucuses in historic landslide. President Donald Trump won the 2024 Iowa caucuses in a historic landslide, securing an unprecedented victory over his Republican primary rivals. Trump's GOP challengers have spent the better part of a year unsuccessfully urging Iowans to move on from the 45th president. Rather than unite around a challenger, however, Iowa Republicans have thrown their support behind Trump. Iowans have delivered Trump the strongest win by a presidential candidate in the Republican caucus's 48-year history. The Associated Press called the race for Trump just 31 minutes after caucusing began at 7pm. The victory was called while many sites were still casting ballots, rankling campaign officials and many Republicans. It took nearly three hours longer to determine Florida Governor Ron DeSantis won second place. Andrew Romeo, spokesperson for the DeSantis campaign, criticised the early calls, predicting Trump as the winner on X. Absolutely outrageous that the media would participate in election interference by calling the race before tens of thousands of Iowans even had a chance to vote, Romeo said. The media is in the tank for Trump and this is the most egregious example yet. DeSantis and former UN ambassador Nikki Haley had been fighting for the scraps that Trump had left them. Haley finished with 19% to finish in third place behind DeSantis with 21%. DeSantis's slim two-point margin may not be enough to catapult him into contention in New Hampshire's upcoming primary. The results prompted one candidate to drop out, entrepreneur and author Vivek Ramaswamy. Ramaswamy received 8% of the vote to finish fourth. He responded by announcing he was ending his campaign to support Trump. There's no power for me to be the next president, absent things we don't want to see happen in this country, he told supporters. Trump celebrated his massive win, describing it as tremendous. It really is an honour that minutes after they've announced I've won against very credible competition, great competition actually, Trump told Fox News. We have to get our country back. 
Our country has gone through so many bad things over the last three years and it is continuing to go through bad things. The victory came despite Iowa's popular Republican Governor Kim Reynolds endorsing DeSantis in November. Reynolds argues that she didn't believe Trump could win a general election against Democrat President Joe Biden. Well, I don't think she's a very good judge, is she? Uh, Well, he can only win if uh, Biden doesn't cheat again, of course. A recent poll revealed that 61% of Iowans said that their support would not change if Trump was convicted in any of his trials. 20% said their support for the 45th president would increase if Trump was convicted. Trump did not hold as many events as his fellow candidates, holding only 13 events since November, according to NBC News. DeSantis and Ramaswamy have both completed the full Grassley of Iowa's 99 counties, named after Republican Senator Chuck Grassley, who makes the trip every year. Trump is currently polling at an average of 61% nationally and nearly 44% on average in the next primary battle in New Hampshire, according to Real Clear Politics. Last Wednesday, Trump also revealed during a town hall on Fox News that he has picked his vice presidential running mate. However, his campaign walked the comments back, saying that the matter hasn't been discussed in any great detail according to ABC News. Nevertheless, if Trump's made his decision, there's little to discuss. So, of course, MAGA supporters are absolutely ecstatic. And, of course, the Democrats and deep states' heads are exploding over the potential that Trump is going to be back in the White House in 2025. It's quite amusing to watch, actually. So now let's take a look at the progress in these um, lawfare cases against Trump. Now, I haven't shared anything from this site before. It's coffeeandcovid.com. And this was posted on the 18th, just a couple of days ago. The title is Sleeping Giants, and it starts off talking about um, the American Cancer Society's 2024 annual report, which is pretty scathing about because of the statistics they've been tweaking to make it look good. But the one I want, the part I want to cover is the actual Trump cases. It says, I have quite a bit of good news in the Trump cases to share with you. There are so many cases that it can be hard to keep track. I came up with a little quick reference case caption to help. A common name of U.S. v. Donald Trump, Mar-a-Lago Raid Classified Documents case. And this is in the Southern District of Florida, the Judge Aileen Cannon and, of course, Special Counsel Jack Smith. The trial is currently scheduled for May 20th, 2024. Most recent activity. Two days ago, Trump's legal team filed a beefy 68-page motion to compel discovery against the government, including a detailed two-page table of contents. The motion alleged that the government, i.e. the special counsel, has been playing games with discovery, has withheld documents, has over-redacted and has not handed over exculpatory evidence. Takes on the motion vary, 
The New York Times article about the motion was headlined Trump signals plans to go after intelligence community in documents case. I suppose that's partly right, but at its core, the motion is about one of the essential requirements in criminal cases. The government must hand over all exculpatory evidence, which is any evidence supporting the accused defendant's case. If the government fails to do that, the case can be dismissed or a conviction can be overturned on appeal. One of Trump's prominent defences is that his prosecution is really an improper political attack designed to stop him from being elected president. The motion described extensive evidence of collusion between various Biden agencies and accused the special prosecutor of failing to hand over that evidence of collusion. Here's how Trump's motion described it. Evidence scattered throughout more than 1.2 million pages of discovery reflects close participation in the investigation by NARA and Biden administration components such as the White House Counsel's Office, as well as senior officials at DOJ and FBI. These revelations are disturbing but not surprising. To be clear, the record strongly supports the existence of additional evidence of bias and political animus that is central to the defence of this case and must be produced promptly. This includes evidence of collusion between the office and the White House, DOJ, FBI and NARA to use the Presidential Records Act, PRA, as a law enforcement tool and to abuse grand jury procedures in violation of due process, other constitutional rights, and the executive privilege. As I predicted last week, the new problems in the Fannie Willis case in Georgia is already helping Trump's other cases. Making a prominent appearance in the motion to compel was the Fulton County DA's office and her high-priced love bunny, Nathan Wade's amateurish invoices reflecting his startling meetings with White House lawyers. The special counsel's office must produce other evidence of bias, including 1. any communications with members, relatives or associates of the Biden administration, 2. communications between members of the Biden administration and the Fulton County District Attorney's Office during the course of the investigation that led to this case, including but not limited to records relating to meetings involving Nathan Wade that are substantiated by legal invoices appended to congressional filings, and three, evidence relating to analytic bias harboured by the intelligence community. Evidence of collusion with the Biden White House, if not outright White House coordination, would blow a crater-sized hole in this case, and probably the other cases too. It would make Watergate and even Russia collusion look like rookie efforts. As you can imagine, with 68 pages of argument, other potential game-changing claims were snuck into the motion. One standout was the apparent fact that Trump held a Q-level top security clearance through 2023, after the FBI's raid on his Florida home. Around that time in 2023, Biden's administration quietly tried to revoke Trump's clearance. 
On August 15, 2023, the Special Counsel's Office disclosed an exculpatory Department of Energy memorandum relating to President Trump's security clearance. Weeks after the office filed the indictment, the Energy Department sought to modify the inconvenient truth that the agency possessed records showing that President Trump maintained a security clearance. All information concerning President Trump's security clearances is discoverable in light of charges relating to unauthorized and willful possession. At minimum, a valid security clearance undercuts that allegation. In other words, how could Trump have illegally possessed classified materials if he held the highest possible security rating at the time? And then the government's attempt to surreptitiously erase that inconvenient fact suggests consciousness of guilt. There's plenty more. For instance, the motion complains that Prosecutor Smith's office redacted thousands of the documents it did hand over, and Trump's lawyers correctly argued redaction is improper under the rules without a prior enabling court order. So Trump wants unredacted copies, which Smith will not want to turn over. Court watchers are opining that, at minimum, the discovery battles will result in the trial getting pushed back until after the election. That seems like a fair prediction. For Trump to get a fair trial, he needs the evidence to defend his case. So far, out of all the Trump judges, Judge Cannon has issued the decisions most favourable to Trump, even to the point the liberal media think she's deliberately trying to help the president. For example, from Slate two days ago, Judge Aileen Cannon is quietly sabotaging the Trump classified documents case. But that's not even close to all. Special Prosecutor Smith is also facing some horrible news in his second Trump case. US versus Donald Trump, J6 insurrection case. It's in DC, Judges Tanya Chutkan, Special Counsel Jack Smith, trial date currently March 4th, 2024. Most recent activity. Politico ran a revealing story yesterday headlined The Sleeping Giant Case That Could Upend Jack Smith's Prosecution of Trump. Last month, the Supreme Court agreed to hear an appeal of a January 6th case styled Joseph W. Fisher versus United States. Formally, the case has nothing to do with Trump. It argues that all January 6th defendants have been unfairly prosecuted for, quote, corruptly obstructing an official proceeding, end quote, because the DOJ incorrectly repurposed a white-collar Sir Baines Oxley law intended to punish document shredding like what happened in the Enron case. So far, the DOJ has used the repurposed financial law to creatively charge over 300 January 6 defendants for capital insurrection. Over 150 of those folks were convicted of the reconditioned crime at jury trials or have voluntarily pleaded guilty to avoid trial. The nettlesome problem is that the DOJ's lawyers were possibly too creative, twisting the financial crimes law into a pretzel-like legal weapon against ordinary citizens who entered the capital 
and also against Trump for allegedly coming up with the riot idea in the first place. Fisher's lawyers reasonably argued that an earlier part of the very same Sarbanes-Oxley statute specifically defined the word corruptly, limiting that word's statutory definition to actions that result in the, quote, alteration, end quote, as in shredding of a document, record or other object. Whoops, none of the J6 defendants altered any documents, records or other objects. They just walked around taking selfies. If the Supreme Court decides that prosecution under this document shredding law requires proof of alteration of a document, record or other object, hundreds of J6 convictions would get tossed and it would rip the beating heart out of Special Prosecutor Smith's J6 case against Trump. Politico neatly summarised the effects like this. The impact of Fisher on the January 6th trial against Trump might not be known until after the Supreme Court wraps up its term in June, at which point it could knock out half of Smith's counts against Trump, and it could also disrupt the convictions of many January 6th defendants already serving time for their role in the insurrection. The bare fact the Supreme Court is now considering Fisher means Judge Chukhan must make a difficult decision about her upcoming Trump trial. Should she go forward and hold the trial as scheduled or push it back to see how the Supreme Court rules on the key claims? So far, judges in two of the other ongoing January 6 cases have delayed defendants' sentencing hearings until after the Supreme Court rules on Fisher. We'll see what Judge Chukhan does. In other news from the same case, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals just denied an appeal filed by Twitter, which is in the case thanks to a subpoena for Trump's posts and messages that was originally issued to Twitter without Trump's knowledge. The social media giant sued the government over the subpoena, and the suit appears to help Trump so much that one woke appellate judge recently actually asked Twitter's lawyers if they were trying to cozy up to the president. Yesterday's denial of the Twitter appeal wasn't bad news for two reasons. First, the denial cleared the way for Twitter to petition the case to the Supreme Court. The case may have legs since it involves pretty serious issues about presidential executive privilege. Second, the denial included a separate opinion written by the D.C. Circuit's minority of five Republican judges who tore Special Prosecutor Smith a new one. They also heavily criticised their fellow judges for ignoring presidential privilege. The dissenting opinion has no legal effect, but it strongly suggests how a conservative Supreme Court might be likely to view the case. He says... I'm having that tingly sensation telling me the momentum is shifting toward Trump in all his cases, such as these recent developments, plus the way Fannie Willis's Georgia racketeering case is melting down. Taken all together, it's all extremely encouraging, except, of course, to the left. I'm going to share a little bit more about this Fannie Willis case in Georgia, and this is from the Daily Caller, Fanny Willis handed lucrative contracts to her alleged lover's law partner, 
it's starting to raise eyebrows. And this was published yesterday on the 19th. Fulton County District Attorney Fanny Willis hired her alleged lover's law partner to work for her office at a rate of $150 an hour, according to documents obtained by the Daily Call and News Foundation, an arrangement that is raising eyebrows among legal experts who question her spending of public funds. Christopher Campbell, a partner at Wade and Campbell firm, has received $126,070 from the Office of the District Attorney since 2021, according to county records. Willis hired Campbell to provide services as a taint attorney, reviewing privileged evidence beginning in January 2021 at a rate of $150 an hour. Contracts obtained by the Daily Call and News Foundation show. Taint attorneys help sift through files obtained from a search warrant to filter out evidence covered by things like attorney-client privilege and prevent them from being passed to prosecutors. Willis appointed Campbell's partner, Nathan Wade, in November 2021 to serve as special prosecutor in the case against former President Donald Trump, despite him allegedly being her boyfriend. A co-defendant of former President Donald Trump accused Willis in a motion last week of awarding Wade, her alleged lover, a lucrative contract claiming she benefited from it because he took her on trips and cruises using the money he earned from the position. The motion further alleged Willis never secured approval from the Fulton County Board of Commissioners to appoint Wade and paid him using funds she requested to clear a backlog of cases from the COVID-19 pandemic. The circumstances surrounding the contracts raise concerns about Willis's allocation of funds, legal experts told the DCNF. John Malcolm, Vice President for the Heritage Foundation's Institute for Constitutional Government, and former Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the DOJ's Criminal Division, told the DCNF that payments to Campbell could pose additional problems for Willis if his work as a taint attorney was for the Trump case. It's not just the issue about Wade being her paramour and the issue of kickbacks, but she also got the funds by misleading the Fulton County Commissioners about what the funds were going to be used for, he said. In addition to that, it would enrich Wade's firm. Willis hired three outside attorneys to work on the Trump case, Wade, John Floyd and Anna Cross. Willis claimed that she paid all three special counsels on the Trump case the same hourly rate, though billing statements obtained by the DCNF revealed she was paying Floyd a lower hourly rate than Wade, her alleged lover. It also seems that Wade was receiving $250 an hour for his work as special prosecutor, $100 more than his partner Campbell. So Fanny Willis appears to be lying yet again. Not only was Campbell hired as a taint attorney, but there was a separate contract from March 1st, 2021 to April 30th, 2021, in which Campbell was hired to provide services as a first appearance attorney at a rate of $65 an hour, according to the document. 
The job is to represent the district attorney's office at a defendant's first appearance hearing, which is held before a judge within 72 hours of arrest to consider the issue of bond and notify the defendant and charges. This is a mystery in and of itself. Atlanta-based criminal defense attorney and legal analyst Philip Holloway told the DCNF, I have no clue why any DA's office needs to pay a private lawyer to handle first appearance calendars. Any assistant DA could easily do that. They are already on the payroll and it's the most simple of all tasks. Holloway said it seems to be a conflict of interest for Camel to work as a taint attorney, what is supposed to be a neutral third party seeking to determine whether privileged material should be withheld from the prosecutor, while simultaneously working as a de facto prosecutor representing the district attorney's office in handling the regular court calendar. While it is unclear what cases Campbell was working on from the contracts alone, Malcolm said there would likely be a need for a taint attorney on the Trump case. Certainly, there are going to be a lot of privilege issues with respect to the Trump case, attorney-client privilege matters, and executive privilege matters, so there would be a need for a taint attorney, Malcolm told the DCNF. Malcolm noted that it might be a bit of a problem that he is at the same firm as Wade, adding you would normally expect a totally outside lawyer to review for these for these kinds of issues. So this thing is smelling to high heaven, isn't it? I mean, it's obviously lawfare, no doubt about that, and a lot of criminality hidden behind it as well by the DA and her lover. Technofog actually reported that the explosive allegations that she's having an ongoing affair with Nathan Wade, the special prosecutor she appointed to persecute Trump have now been corroborated. And the reason is that they're involved in the Wades-Cobb County divorce proceedings with his soon-to-be ex-wife Jocelyn Wade. Jocelyn has sought to depose Willis as part of the divorce case, alleging that Willis has an ongoing affair with her husband and that Willis would have insight into Nathan Wade's actions and the marriage itself, knowledge that would help the divorce court divide the marital assets and calculate spousal support. Willis sought a protective order to prevent her deposition and gave implied threats that Jocelyn was obstructing the DA's investigation of Trump, yet Willis never denied the affair. And so attorneys for Jocelyn Wade dropped today's bomb, which included her husband's credit card statements, where trips were purchased for Willis. Special Prosecutor Nathan Wade has, according to his credit card statements, taken trips to San Francisco and Napa Valley, Florida, got on a Caribbean cruise, Australia, Panama and Belize. These trips all took place after he filed for divorce. And Willis, the boss of Nathan Wade, the woman who enriched him by, by appointing him as special prosecutor, joined Wade on some of, if not all, of these trips. So on to the WEF and their meeting at Davos this week. And really, they're getting hit from different directions here. Um, what heritage president tells global elites at Davos conference? And this was the Daily Signal on the 18th. 
Officials in a future Republican presidential administration in the U.S. must reject a left-leading global agenda, Heritage Foundation President Kevin Roberts told a crowd Thursday at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. I will be candid and say the agenda that every single member of the administration needs to have is to compile a list of everything that has ever been proposed at the World Economic Forum and object to all of them wholesale, Roberts said, speaking as a leader of America's conservative movement. Anyone not prepared to do that and take away this power of the unelected bureaucrats and give it back to the American people is unprepared to be part of the next conservative administration, the president of the leading U.S. think tank said. Uh, The Daily Signal is the Heritage Foundation's news outlet. Roberts, who heads a think tank headquartered on Capitol Hill, was just as candid at several points at the annual World Economic Forum in Davos while participating in a panel discussion titled What Can We Expect from a Possible Republican Administration in 2025 in Terms of Continuation or deviation from this course. Wall Street Journal editor-at-large Gerard Baker was the first panellist to raise the prospect that if former President Donald Trump is elected to another term in the November election, he would become a dictator. The Wall Street Journal editor called it a legitimate concern, saying America's constitutional republic would be tested but said the Constitution's separation of powers would prevent a dictatorship from occurring. President Joe Biden and his campaign, as well as many other Democrats, have said that Trump desires to become a dictator. When asked about the matter, Roberts called it laughable that anyone would suggest the World Economic Forum is protecting liberal democracy and and equally so to attack Trump as a would-be dictator. The very reason that I'm here in Davos is to explain to many people in this room and who are watching, with all due respect, nothing personal, but that you are part of the problem, Heritage's president said. Political elites tell the people on three or four or five issues that the reality is X when in fact the reality is Y. Roberts noted that the World Economic Forum promotes a narrative that illegal immigration is positive that there's no public safety threat in large American cities and that climate change is catastrophic. The fourth issue he brought up is the WEF's embrace of China. China, the number one adversary not just to the United States but to free people on planet Earth. Not only do we at Davos not say that, we give the Chinese Communist Party a platform, Roberts said. In a conference call with reporters after the panel, Roberts noted that some in the front row seemed to gasp when he talked about China and also appeared to express frustration. He also said the WEF provided a platform to Iran's Islamist regime. Fifth, Roberts said, the World Health Organization is pushing gender ideology even though it's being rejected by countries in Northern Europe. The new president, especially if it is President Trump, will, as you like to say, trust the science, Roberts told the Davos audience. He will understand the basic biological reality of manhood and womanhood. Do you know why? Not because of retribution, 
not because he's a dictator, but because he has the power of the American people behind him. There were other people at uh, Davos that were actually calling out the whole WEF agenda. And there's been some interesting news this week relative to that as well. And this again is from the Daily Caller. Exclusive House Republicans introduced legislation to defund World Economic Forum. This was from yesterday. A group of House Republicans led by Pennsylvania Representative Scott Perry introduced legislation Thursday to defund the World Economic Forum. The Daily Caller first obtained a copy of the bill, which is titled the Defund Davos Act. The legislation would specifically block the State Department, USAID and any other federal agency from providing funding to the WEF. The U.S. has spent millions on the WEF over the years, something Perry and other GOP lawmakers says needs to end. Forcing American taxpayers to fund annual ski trips for insular global elitists is absurd, not to mention reprehensible, Perry told the caller before introducing the bill. The World Economic Forum doesn't deserve one cent of American funding and it's past time we defund Davos. And hopefully they'll also do the same with the WHO, which of course Trump defunded and Biden reversed it as soon as he got into the White House. And then some good news from Sweden. Sweden scrapping Agenda 2030 goals. This was published on the 17th. Sweden has been doing a lot of right things lately. They have already scrapped the renewable energy plans and have been pushing for more nuclear power. In the new year, Sweden removed climate taxes on fuel, causing diesel prices to collapse by over four Swedish kroner per litre. In 2022, when the Socialist Democrats were in power, the diesel price reached a whopping 28 Swedish kroner per litre. After the right-wing government removed climate taxes, prices in the new year reached almost as low as 17 Swedish kroner per litre. That is around 39% lower diesel prices. Wow. And now during the Christmas holidays, they have removed the Agenda 2030 goals from the directives to government organisations such as the Swedish Energy Agency, the Swedish Chemicals Agency, the Swedish Agency for Marine and Water Management and the Swedish Food Agency, among others. This is huge. And then the last topic of the day, why is DOJ publicly affirming for the first time that the laptop, of course meaning Hunter's laptop, is real and genuine? This is Brian Cates, Rise of the New Media newsletter on Substack, and it was published yesterday. I think I know the answer, and it's going to upset a lot of people. Merrick Garland's Department of Justice finally has gotten around to publicly admitting what everybody's known for more than three full years, that the Hunter Biden laptop is genuine, that it's not Russian disinformation. Remember how they crossed land and sea and went the extra mile in a blatant iron-fisted censorship crackdown to ensure that laptop had limited, if any, impact on the 2020 stolen election. DOJ had three years to cough up an admission that the laptop was genuine. Why now, at this late date? 
Why admit the obvious at this point after obfuscating and refusing to say so for going on three full years since the laptop story was broken by the New York Post in October of 2020? And why finally make this reluctant admission just as the 2024 election cycle is about to kick into high gear? My initial take is that Garland and the DOJ is being forced into this very public admission now only because of special counsel David Weiss, who I suspect is getting ready to hit Hunter Biden and several others with federal felony charges filed in Washington, D.C., where the laptop will play a key role in the indictments. First off, let me say that I have no inside sources. I don't have anybody anonymously feeding me any information from anywhere. Unlike a lot of clout-chasing fakers, I don't claim to have cool top-level inside sources that don't exist. I make my predictions as to what might happen from publicly available information. And he references the Marco Polo report on the Hunter Biden laptop contents and the House Weaponization Committee's report on what the IRS whistleblowers testified to. The IRS whistleblowers told the House Committee on pages 80 to 83 of the released House Ways and Means report that while he was yet just a mere U.S. attorney for Delaware, Weiss had sought to file federal felony charges against Hunter Biden in two districts outside of his jurisdiction in Delaware and had been denied. Those districts were the Central District of California and the District of Columbia, i.e. Washington, D.C. But Weiss ran headlong into a big problem when he sought to file federal felony charges against Hunter in California and Washington, D.C. It turns out a U.S. attorney only has jurisdiction to file indictments in his or her own district, to seat a grand jury and file federal felony charges against someone in another U.S. attorney's backyard, you have to first get that other U.S. attorney's permission to do that. And if you don't get permission, well, golly, you're just out of luck. And here's what the IRS whistleblowers told the House committee in their sworn testimony. When Weiss politely asked the U.S. attorney for the Central District of California and the U.S. Attorney for Washington, D.C., for their permission to seat, to seat a grand jury to seek an indictment of Hunter Biden in their jurisdiction, both very strongly told Weiss no. Then Weiss approached the Attorney General at the DOJ, Merrick Garland, and after informing Garland that both U.S. attorneys had refused to give him permission to pursue federal felony charges, against Hunter in their districts, Weiss requested that Garland give him special counsel status so that he could file the charges against Hunter in these two districts on his own, without getting any permission first from the U.S. attorneys there. See, that's the great thing about getting special counsel status. Once you are appointed a special counsel, all those barriers and boundaries that get in your way when you are just a mere U.S. attorney suddenly disappear. Now you can file federal charges in any district, any state that you want to file them in. The U.S. attorneys for those districts or states can disapprove of what you are doing, but you don't require their permission any longer and they can't stop you. Awesome, right? Well, guess what happened when Weiss approached A.G. Garland and asked for special counsel status? According to the IRS whistleblower's testimony, 
Garland told Weiss to get lost. Absolutely not was Garland going to appoint Weiss as a special counsel to investigate and pursue charges against Joe Biden's son in two districts outside of his jurisdiction. It was in the summer of last year that it was made public that these key IRS whistleblowers had gone to the House Committee and had testified and handed over key evidence. That evidence included a ton of bank records and information about the two dozen fake LLC shell companies the Biden crime family had created and utilised to hide the transfer of the dirty bribe money from foreign sources to the Biden crime family's bank accounts. Right after all this evidence went public, an amazing thing happened at the DOJ. Something truly astonishing if you'd followed this from the very beginning as I have. Because of that IRS whistleblower testimony and evidence going public thanks to a clean house, Garland gritted his teeth and backtracked. He called Weiss in and then reluctantly, oh so very reluctantly, gave him the special counsel status he had previously requested. So, I made this prediction right after Hunter's sweetheart plea deal in Delaware Federal Court was blown up by the judge asking awkward questions about it. And right after newly appointed special counsel David Weiss unsealed several new felony gun charges against Hunter Biden in Delaware in August of last year. And it shows a tweet from Brian. So to sum up, there are two specific reasons you see members of Hunter's legal team leaving. One, he's about to be indicted by the special counsel in multiple states, including California and D.C. And his two, his former legal team is facing sanctions for their conduct in lying to the court multiple times. At that time, I made the prediction based on everything I knew from the public record that we would see special counsel Weiss file federal felony charges against Hunter Biden in two distinct locations, California and Washington, D.C. Back in early December, Weiss affirmed my prediction about federal felony charges in California by unsealing an eye-opening indictment that a grand jury had returned against Hunter in the Central District of California. That California indictment meant any fake news or con ink obfuscations about whether there were illegal foreign bribery schemes where millions of dollars changed hands from places like Ukraine, Russia, Kazakhstan and China are now pretty much useless. When you get federally indicted for not paying your taxes on the bribery money, the issue of if there was any bribery scheme money is now a moot point. Look, I walked you very carefully through this so you would see I did not pull the prediction about a forthcoming federal indictment of Hunter in D.C. out of my ass. I'm basing my prediction on something. While a lot of the clickbait outrage circus news media does the Carnival Barker Act, I actually research things before I open my mouth. If you knew what the IRS whistleblowers had testified to, Making this prediction about Weiss unsealing federal grand jury indictments against Hunter in California and D.C. was not really some weird Nostradamus act. I felt quite confident making that prediction, actually, and since Weiss already came through on the California part of that prediction, I'm still confident about the D.C. part of it. 
The DOJ is not just suddenly confirming the authenticity of the laptop because it wants to. The DOJ is confirming that the laptop is genuine and the evidence on it is real because it has to. And it probably won't take that much longer for us to see why the DOJ had to do this now. I suspect they are trying to get out ahead of something. What that something is, we'll have to wait and see. Um, But it sounds like uh, Hunter's not going to get away with this gun charge either. So that'll be interesting to see because that would uh, incur a jail sentence as well. And I think, you know, we're looking at the Biden crime family hopefully coming down soon. We'll see. And, of course, they're panicking. And as, as I said or reported earlier, they're trying to paint Trump as a dictator. And interestingly, um, I just had a break from recording this and I came across an interesting tweet that was posted just two hours ago. And it was by Paul Kirby, who's a Make Britain Great Again supporter. Attention, everyone. I have an important message to deliver. I must stress the importance of acknowledging the truth, even if it may be difficult to swallow. And the truth is Boris Johnson, love him or hate him, has hit the nail on the head with his recent statement. Donald Trump, whether you agree with his policies or not, is an undeniable force to be reckoned with. He has proven time and time again that he is a strong leader who is not afraid to shake things up and put his country first. And isn't that what we all want in a leader? Someone who is willing to make tough decisions and put the well-being of their nation above all else. Despite the constant criticism and opposition he has faced, Trump has remained steadfast in his beliefs and has continuously fought for the betterment of America. This is a quality that is often lacking in today's political landscape. We need more leaders like him who are not afraid to go against the mainstream and stand up for what they believe in. Some may argue that Trump's brash and outspoken nature is a negative trait, but in reality it is a breath of fresh air. Well, isn't that surprising? I thought that when Boris was uh, hospitalised with COVID that he was swapped out because prior to that he was very much in Trump's camp and then changed completely. There's also other people coming out and not loudly but kind of implying that Trump isn't as bad as all that and it makes you wonder what the pressure is that's being put on these people to make an about turn about Trump. It'll be interesting to see how these things play out. So anyway, that's all I have time for today. I hope you enjoyed the show and you'll join me for another Cosmic Creating show next week. Um, Thank you to Nancy for producing and for Derek Condit for sponsoring Cosmic Reality Radio. And you can find him at mysticalwares.com. There's a wonderful selection of Shungite products and also metaphysical goodies. And just as a reminder, you can find me at the successalchemist.net. So until next time, stay well, be safe, and bye for now.
You have been listening to Cosmic Creating with Jan Shaw, updating current reality, a production of CosmicReality.com.